Hello, everybody. This is Dale, and you're listening to Nature's Edge. I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm about tired of this winter we've got here going on in uh, in western North Carolina. It seems like uh, every other day we're having ice or snow, and on top of that, I just... Uh, just got off an airplane after flying all night, so if I go to sleep, Leslie, you're going to have to kind of yell in my ear or or, or do something uh, that's going on. I'm going to do something a little different today on the show. I, I've had a number of emails from people wanting to know when I was going to do a show about uh, the Trelateers and the American Indian removal. Uh, most of you I know that in uh, a couple of years ago, I was the, became the first person to solo paddle the water trail of the Trail of Tears. Most people are aware of the Trail of Tears, and most people think it was a land strictly by land, and most people think it was just the Cherokee that were removed to uh, Indian Territory, now known as the state of Oklahoma, but that was just not true. And even fewer people know that there was a water trail. Well, today I'm going to share my experiences with a water trail. We're going to talk about the Trail of Tears. We're going to talk about what led up to that removal, and um, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about how I went about planning uh, for this particular expedition. Uh, I've done expeditions all over the world, and this is one of the first expeditions that I've done in my own home country, so I was excited to do it. We did this in um, the summer of 2012, and I actually started this uh, journey in Chattanooga, Tennessee on the Tennessee River, and I I paddled the Tennessee River up to Paducah, Kentucky, where I picked up the Ohio River. From the Ohio River, I paddled over to the Mississippi River in at Cairo, Illinois, paddled down the Mississippi River uh, about 300 miles plus, and then picked up the Arkansas River and paddled across the state of Arkansas and ended my journey at Fort Gibson, Oklahoma, which is where the Trail of Tears pretty much ended. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about that today, and I'm gonna I'm gonna start by letting you know that the Indian the the policies that the U.S. government has had on the American Indian and American Indian removal actually started by a royal proclamation back in 1763. Uh, King George III actually was trying to stabilize the relationship uh, from the European settlers with the American Indian along the uh, along the Atlantic coast. And he basically just said, well, the Indians can have everything west of the Appalachian Mountains, uh, not not realizing that at some point in time that the, um, the, that, that the settlers and the frontier would expand. He just couldn't, couldn't see that. So going all the way back to 1763, there was this... this Proclamation, or what are we going to do with the American Indian people? Then, uh, then came George Washington. We we had fought the Revolutionary War, and uh, the United States had gained its independence, and we had our first president. And Washington, his his thought on the on the American Indian was, um, let's just simply civilize the Indian people. Uh, in other words, let's make them white. Let's make them like we are. Let's educate them. Let's uh, assimilate them into our culture. And by doing that, we'll be ahead of the game, and they'll be better for it. So George Washington, our first president, actually uh, 
had a policy uh, about what uh, what needed to be done with with the American Indian. Right after that came along Thomas Jefferson, another very prominent president of the United States, and and uh, President Jefferson. Uh, uh, started a, a removal policy to to move Indian nations from the east of the Mississippi to relatively unsettled lands on the west side of the Mississippi. Most people think Andrew Jackson was the first to say let's let's send the uh, let's send the Indian peoples uh, west of the Mississippi. But in fact, um, Thomas Jefferson first started having that dialogue and talking about the best way to deal with uh, deal with the deal with the Indian uh, problem. Uh, as he saw it, and what you got to remember is is that the way that people were thinking uh, in in that period of time was was what they believed. They believed that the American Indians were a savage people, and that they and and Jefferson believed that they really could not be acclimated the way Washington wanted them to do. So he still wanted them to have their land, have their culture, have their languages, but he just said. We've got to separate, uh, separate you from from the white settlers. So we'll just give you everything west of the Mississippi River. Again, not understanding and not realizing at that time just how vast this country was. You got to remember this is before the Lewis and Clark expedition. This is before we really started moving uh, west and settlers started moving west. I mean, the frontier at this time was really Kentucky. Um, and and west of the Appalachian Mountains, so that was that was considered moving them west of the Mississippi was was uh, like us now sending somebody to the moon or something. It was just uh, unbelievable that that uh, we would expand into that area. Then this brings us to Andrew Jackson. Uh, by the time Andrew Jackson became president in eighteen twenty nine. The native population east of the Mississippi River had really dwindled down. Uh, when when the settlers first started coming to the United States uh, early on in in the fifteen, sixteen, seventeen hundreds, there were literally millions of of American Indians living in the North American continent. By now, eighteen twenty nine, uh, that number had dwindled down to less than a quarter of a million, and there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, uh, which we're going to talk about, uh, not the least among was was smallpox and diseases, which which eliminated and killed off many of the uh, many of the tribes. Um, so when Jackson came into um, the powers of president, uh, those numbers had had really dropped off uh, uh, quite a bit. At the same time, the non-Indian population or the white population. Uh, coming into the country was now approaching about 13 million. So there were 13 million um, uh, citizens who wanted to um, to have land, wanted to expand westward, and wanting to do things. So again, Jackson began to look at what is going to be the policy, what is going to be my presidential policy, dealing with uh, the Indian people and separating them away from. Uh, the settlers that are that are coming into the country. Uh, I mentioned that uh, uh, disease had had killed off a large number. There was really two smallpox epidemics. One was around 1738, and one was around 1739, and they literally killed off and took about half of the people 
uh, of of the tribes um, in North America, particularly the uh, the East Coast tribes of the time. Then we had something called a French and Indian War came about, and quite a few uh, of the Native Americans uh, were killed during the French and Indian War. Right after that, we had the Revolutionary War, and um, and quite a few of the Indians uh, were killed off during the Revolutionary War. And it's interesting to note that a lot of the major tribes, particularly the Cherokee, um, during the Revolutionary War, they sided with the British. Uh, so obviously, this did not make um, did not make the American uh, government uh, very happy, especially after uh, after winning the Revolutionary War. So there were some. Uh, some consequences um, to deal with there, and that also cost a lot. So you can see, uh, going back, um, gosh, over a hundred years from the time, uh, you can see how now the Indian populations were uh, being diminished uh, along the East Coast. The smallpox, the wars, and just the uh, intrusion of the settlers moving in. You are tuned to Nature's Edge with Dale Stewart. We're going to be back, and I'm going to talk to you a little more about President Jackson's uh, Indian removal policy and uh, and what led to that and kind of what, what happened and what was going on um, in, in his mind uh, to really drive this, uh, this removal policy. This is Nature's Edge, and we will be back after this short break. back to Nature's Edge. This is Dale, and we're talking about my solo expedition that I did in 2012, retracing the water route of the Trail of Tears. Uh, again, a lot of people were not aware that there was a water route. Uh, in fact, the government early on wanted to remove all of the Indians by water. They thought it would be uh, more humane. They thought it would be faster. Uh, it proved to be neither of those things, and we're going to talk about that a little more uh, a little later on in the show. Right now, I was talking about Andrew Jackson, who uh, gets all the credit, if you will, for removing the Indians from uh, uh, particularly the southeast uh, to um, to west of the Mississippi River to what what is known as Indian land, Indian territory, which is now known as the Oklahoma uh, state of Oklahoma. But Jackson, he really saw Indian removal as an opportunity to provide for the needs of the white farmers and businessmen. Uh, he also claimed that the removal was was also uh, in the best interest of the Indian people. What you've got to know about Andrew Jackson, he was a politician. And, of course, the American Indian uh, could not vote uh, in, the, uh, in the 1800s. And... Uh, the men and women, the the uh, uh, the farmers and the businessmen who lived particularly in the southeast areas of Georgia and Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, uh, they could vote. And uh, Jackson, at the just remember, folks, he was a politician, so he kind of catered to the ones that could that could uh, could help him out since the Indians couldn't vote. 
Since the white farmers and businessmen wanted their land, uh, gold was also discovered on uh, Indian land, particularly in Georgia, it's Cherokee land. Um, so he went along with them and said, okay, we'll, uh, we'll do what we can to remove um, the Indians. you got to remember, too, as I said earlier on, a lot of people believe that the Trail of Tears was primarily just the Cherokee and that the Cherokee were removed from North Carolina, northern Georgia, and, and marched to Oklahoma pretty much along the line that uh, where Interstate uh, 40 is now. But uh, it was not true. There were, there were a number of, of land trails. Uh, some of them went up through Kentucky and Missouri uh, into the territory. Some went through northern Tennessee and Arkansas into uh, the Indian Territory. Some uh, went uh, uh, kind of a southern route, uh, particularly the Choctaw. Uh, moved along and and uh, it was not just the Cherokee all of the you got to remember the American Indian Removal Act removed all Indians east of the Mississippi River well the Mississippi River goes from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico so really all Indians east of the Mississippi River were affected but the tribes most associated with the Trail of Tears and the tribes that were most uh, uh, affected if you will by this this horrible removal were the Cherokee, the Creek, the Chickasaw, the Choctaw, and the Seminole. Now, the Cherokee, um, they kind of lived in um, western North Carolina, northern Georgia, uh, east Tennessee, down into Alabama a little bit. Uh, the Chickasaw, the Chickasaw primarily in northern Mississippi uh, area. The Choctaw were just south of, of the Chickasaw and in uh a little bit down in, in southern Mississippi and a little bit over into Alabama. Um, you had the Creek, which were in Alabama primarily, but also did come up uh, uh, into uh, Georgia a little bit, up almost to the Tennessee border. And then, of course, you had the Seminole, and the Seminole were uh, in Florida, located in Florida for the, uh, for the most part. So we're going to talk about the these five uh, tribes that were removed again not just the Cherokee but but all of the all of the uh, so-called civilized tribes um, Jackson made a rather famous statement to the Indians and and he's he 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 said where you now are you and my white children are too new too near to each other to live in harmony and peace your game is gone and many of your people will not work until the earth the land beyond the Mississippi belongs to the president and no one else, and he will give it to you forever. So that was Jackson's statement to the Indian people, trying to get them to move by saying, look, I'm going to give you all this, this free land because it belongs and is controlled by the, by the president of the United States. I'm going to give it to you, and no one will ever take it away from you. Well, we, we kind of know how that, uh, how that worked out. Then came along the Indian Removal Act of 1830. This act was signed into law by Andrew Jackson in May, around the end of May. I forgot the exact date, but the end of May in 1830. And the act authorized him to negotiate, and that's a key word, negotiate with the Indian people in the southern United States for their removal to federal territory west of the Mississippi River in exchange for their lands, in exchange for these farms and this, this homeland um, that these uh, these five civilized tribes have. And you have to understand, especially the Cherokee, the Cherokee were farmers and and, and had really 
developed some rather large plantations uh, growing cotton. They also were slave owners. They had slaves. And if you ever visit uh, any of the any of the old uh, Cherokee plantations, particularly in in Georgia and Alabama, uh, you'll see these were huge plantations, not unlike uh, some of the large plantations that a lot of you may be familiar with in in Georgia and Louisiana, Mississippi, and across through there. These these were very wealthy people. And the uh, the local businessmen, the local whites, said, oh, we want this. We want that land. So that's that's what really led to one of the one of the things that really led Jackson to uh, push this issue. But remember, the act gave him the authority to negotiate, not to force, but to negotiate. Um, and as negotiations kind of broke down, that's when the roundup and the forcing uh, removal took place. I mentioned that there were five tribes affected by the Indian Removal Act in southeast United States, the Choctaw, the Seminole, the Creek, the Chickasaw, and the Cherokee. And actually the Cherokee, who are maybe best known for the Trail of Tears, were they actually the last group removed. The first group uh, in 1831 that was removed were the Choctaw out of Mississippi. That was followed uh, very closely uh, the next year with the removal of the Seminole. And uh, a few years later, I think in 1834, the Creek uh, Nation was was removed. Uh, Following that was the Chickasaw. And then in 1838, we had the Cherokee uh, removed. So you can see from from about 1830, 18 through um, through all of the 30s, uh, the removal was taking place and was going on. And actually there was some removal later than that and there was some um, some of the indian people that actually uh, sort of read the writing on the the wall if you will even back into the 1820s who removed uh, uh, themselves and uh, and went west primarily into arkansas and we'll we'll talk a little more about that as we get as we get going but the uh, the five civilized tribes and and the reason they were called the civilized tribes is they actually tried to adopt uh do what uh, Kind of what George Washington said. I want you guys to assimilate with with the uh, with the Europeans, with the white uh, uh, farmers. And uh, the five civilized tribes actually tried to do this. They actually adopted a farming lifestyle. Um, they, uh, uh, particularly the the, uh, the Cherokee, the Creek, uh, the Chickasaw, and the Choctaw, and um, they began to educate their their kids and send them to schools. The Cherokee, as many of you know, had uh, had their own written language, and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, how that came about. And um, and and then the Cherokee also established a, a newspaper uh, over at New Echota, and that was the Cherokee Phoenix, which is still uh, still around today. And then the uh, then the they adopted the white man's idea of of slavery and and established their plantations. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the individual tribes that were removed, how they were removed, and sort of where all this water trail fit in. You're listening to Dale and Nature's Edge, and we shall return.
We have returned. This is Dale, and you're tuned in and listening to Nature's Edge. Today we're doing something a little different. I am talking about my water journey when I paddled the water route uh, of the Trail of Tears back in the summer of 2012. And uh, giving you a little of the background information on the Trail of Tears and, and a little bit about the various tribes that were removed and some of the some of the policies that led up to the removal of the uh, uh, of the American Indian uh, people to um, Indian Territory in the, what is now known as the state of Oklahoma. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I actually started this journey in June uh, at Ross's Landing, and Ross's Landing is the former name of Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's named for John Ross, who at the time of the removal was the principal chief of the Cherokee Nation and also one of the areas where some of the very first uh, water removal uh, of the Indian people took place. Uh, uh, so it, it was, in my mind, it was the place to start this journey. We also mentioned earlier that it wasn't just the Cherokee, and one of the very first tribes actually removed were the Choctaw. The Choctaw's home was, uh, and, and still is, uh, in Mississippi. Uh, primarily uh, the whole state, with a with a few living over in uh, in western Alabama, but the Choctaw were the first people to be forcibly removed by the federal government under the Indian Removal Act of 1830, and this really was following the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek. The Choctaw were to be removed by steamboats and wagons, so they were to be removed by water, and. Uh, they were primarily rounded up and taken to Vicksburg, Mississippi, uh, and some of them actually taken up to uh, Memphis, Tennessee. And here they were placed on barges that were attached to steamboats and taken uh, uh, from Vicksburg. They would have gone up the Mississippi River to the Arkansas River and then uh, uh, taken across uh, the state of Arkansas on the river uh, by the steamboats. And the, the group that came out of Memphis, Tennessee, of course, would have gone south uh, down to the Arkansas River and across. And, and quite a few of the Choctaw uh, were actually removed by water. One of the, one of the other reasons, uh, other than the government wanted to try removing them by water, was at the period of time when the Choctaw were removed, there was heavy rains and flooding of the roads that, that they were going to take. So there was really no way the Choctaw could be taken west by foot or wagon, so this left uh, only really one alternative, and that was to take them by steamboat. And uh, there were actually five steamboats, and these steamboats were contracted um, uh, to to uh, to take the uh, the Choctaw people, and they departed from Vicksburg, as I said, and from Memphis, Tennessee. The next group that were removed were the Seminoles. The Seminoles. Um, or actually the only group, they were the smallest group removed, and they were also the only group that was removed primarily by water. One of the reasons for that is the Seminole live in Florida. They were rounded up, uh, what few uh, uh, could be rounded up, uh, roughly some 800 out of the Everglades were rounded up and, and taken to uh, Tampa, Florida, where they were held in, in uh what you could only call a concentration camp. They were then transferred to... Uh, to sailing ships and taken to uh, New Orleans. And uh, once they arrived in New Orleans, they were put on steamboats uh, with keelboats in tow, and they traveled up the Mississippi River before heading uh, up to the Arkansas River. 
so the Seminole were um, were primarily removed uh, by water. One interesting fact of the Seminole: the Seminole were fierce fighters, um, and one of the one of the things that happened when they got the the uh, Seminole to uh, rounded up and into Tampa, they actually separated the men from the women and the children because they thought if we separate the men, they'll behave themselves. So they put their wives and their mothers and the kids on one on one ship and the Seminole men on another and told the men, look, behave yourself or you'll never see your wives and children ever again. So that was, uh, that was just another insult to injury, I guess, uh, would be a good way to put it. The third group removed were the Creeks. And uh, uh, most of the creeks uh, that travel by the water trail departed from Tuscumbia Landing in present-day Alabama. And they also travel by steamboats and keelboats. Uh, interesting enough, they sent their horses uh, in charge of contractors uh, uh, that were driven uh, uh, by other people. And, and um, the Trail of Tears, is, is <coughs> as sad as it was, um, was was also kind of a boom for the economy along these along these trails because the U.S. government actually hired uh, people to move the horses, to move the wagons. They hired them to supply um, uh, food and uh, uh, chop wood and leave it on the banks for the steamboat. So there was a little bit of a boom on the economy. Now, again, this was primarily the white man that was getting this done, but... Uh, there were a few Indians that uh, that also uh, served as contractors and went along with the with the uh, with the horses primarily that they were driving because they did let them keep uh, their horses. Uh, the Chickasaw during the summer and fall of uh, I think it was eighteen thirty seven. There was about four thousand Chickasaw that uh, was were scheduled to be removed. And a contract was obtained to transport them, again, by boat, from Memphis to Fort Coffey, uh, Oklahoma, which is just uh, south of Fort Gibson in, in Indian Territory. And uh, they were going to use six steamboats. And these steamboats, again, were pulling flatboats and keelboats. And again, the Chickasaw's livestock was driven um, overland by contractors uh, to meet up with the, uh, with the Chickasaw when they, uh, when they arrived in Oklahoma. And again, the Chickasaw were in Mississippi, a little bit of Alabama, and a uh, little bit of uh, West Tennessee when they were uh, forced from their homeland and, and forced to remove. Uh. The last group and the final group, of course, was the Cherokee. And the Cherokee, uh, the main removal of the Cherokee people took place in 1838. There were actually four detachments uh, that traveled Indian Territory by water. And three of these detachments were composed of uh, Georgia Cherokee and were accompanied by military escorts. And the final detachment was Chief Ross himself and his affiliated group, and they, uh, uh, they were also uh, uh, escorted, if you will, by military. Uh, and this particular group was um, headed up by uh, Captain John Drew. It's interesting also that John Ross was able to purchase his own steamboat. So Ross actually uh, removed uh, himself, some of the other elders, and his family uh, in his private boat, if you will, uh, uh, leaving out of Ross's landing in Chattanooga and traveling the Tennessee River, the Ohio, the Mississippi, and the Arkansas, finally to, uh, to the Oklahoma Territory. 
my journey was really one uh, uh, of uh, at one of the hottest uh, points of the of the summer. It seems like uh, a lot of people have asked me that uh, that saw pictures or saw some of the video from my uh, from my journey. Uh, they said, "Boy, you look hot." Now, let me tell you something, guys. I paddled twenty something days with a temperature of one hundred and five degrees or more. Um, that was brutal. And I had all the best and finest gear that you can possibly have. And in my research, I found that also the summer, um, particularly uh, one of the summers that the Cherokee removed, they faced some of the same extreme heat and low water levels that uh, that I ran into. Uh, but I will tell you, uh, again, I had the best gear and the best clothing and the best uh, the best equipment that you could buy, and I still was pretty miserable. So I, I cannot imagine how these poor people, uh, men, women, and children that were forced uh, not only to uh, walk, but the ones that were on the water. you got to remember, they were just sort of packed in on these keelboats and on these barges. Uh, so life was not, uh, just because they were going by water, was certainly not easy. A lot of dysentery, a lot of death, primarily from uh, the elders and, and young children, and a lot of it had to do with cholera and with dysentery. You're listening to, what are you listening to? You're listening to Nature's Edge. I lost my way there for a moment. Thank you, Leslie. Nature's Edge, this is Dale Stewart. We're going to be back in just a moment, and we'll finish up our discussion of the Trail of Tears water route. What are we doing, Leslie? Are we going? We have returned. This is Dale, and you're listening to Nature's Edge. And today I'm talking about my expedition that I did in the summer of 2012, retracing the water route of the Trail of Tears, a a little-known trail that a lot of people don't know about. I was just discussing with you uh, before the break the the five tribes that were removed primarily by by land and by water. Those were the Cherokee, the Chickasaw, the Choctaw, the Seminole, and the Creeks. One of the things I did, uh, like any expedition that I do, I did a lot of research and a lot of homework, uh, probably uh, for a year at least before I actually sat out on this on this journey because I, I wanted to learn as much as I could. I was amazed uh, the like of, of knowledge about the water trail, even among uh, a lot of the American Indian people. They said, oh, yeah, we, we know about it, but, Dale, we don't know a lot about it. So... That really made me dig in and start doing my research. And one of the things that I like to do, as I paddle the water route, I wanted to camp as near to areas of significance of the water route and the land route that I possibly could do. Uh, for instance, one of my uh, early camps was at Waterloo Landing in uh, in Alabama, and Waterloo Waterloo Landing is where um, uh, some of the Cherokee and Creek removal parties uh passed or or stopped at least so one of my camps was there uh, and and i camped out every night uh, uh, for the most part Uh, the journey took me uh, some 66 days uh, from chattanooga tennessee to uh, uh, to oklahoma and again in in pretty hot weather i was fortunate that the water levels were were fairly low and uh this this really made uh, made my trip pretty interesting, and also uh, 
quite a few people say, you know, well, Dale paddling the Tennessee River, you were paddling against the current all the way up north. Well, no. The Tennessee River is one of the few rivers uh, in the world that flows north. So I actually had the current with me all the way to Paducah. And then, of course, I had the current with me from Ohio on the Ohio River. I was only on the Ohio River for about 32, 33 miles, uh, kind of a short distance uh, over to the Mississippi. Now, the Mississippi River was quite low, and uh, my greatest threat on the Mississippi River uh, was these huge... Uh, Huge barges and push boats that uh, that 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 are on the Mississippi River, and also I didn't have a lot of places to stop and resupply when I was on the Mississippi River. Uh, and my greatest need uh, uh, on this expedition, like most expeditions, was was water. Was was and especially with the heat, uh, was was staying hydrated. Um, also, the dams. Uh, a lot of people ask me how I dealt with the dams, and primarily the the big dams on the Tennessee River and on the Arkansas River, and I had made arrangements uh, to um, have crews meet me at these large dams and take me and my boat around the dams. Uh, I did not want to lock through in this rather small uh, uh, little kayak that I was paddling, so we went around. One of the other interesting places that I stopped was a place called Savannah, Tennessee, uh, on the Tennessee River, and uh, uh, and the Tennessee River was a kind of the primary water trail, again, for the uh, Cherokee and the Creek removal detachments. And what's interesting about Savannah is Savannah also is where the Bell land route passed through Savannah. So this was actually a place where the land route and the water route crossed. And uh, so it was very interesting there and uh, uh, paddled in there and got to spend a little time there and was able to... Uh, get a little history lesson of what was going on in savannah and and uh, at the time uh, and of course savannah is also known uh, as as the huge uh, shallow uh, battlefield for the civil war which happened uh, quite a few years later after the uh, after the cherokee and the creek came through there i mentioned earlier there there were a number of days especially on the tennessee river early on um, i think there was 10 or 15 days there where i literally was paddling in this 105 degree uh, heat or, or above and people would remind me said oh well you're on the water so it couldn't have been that hot folks it was hot it was just uh brutal some days and remember i'm paddling my only my only mode of transportation is my arms and uh, uh i would start about sun up and i would try to paddle just till just before dark where i would start looking for a place to set up my little tent and fix me uh something to eat and uh and get some sleep um, and I tried to do, uh, I averaged about 22 to 25 miles a day, depending, uh, again, on, on sort of weather conditions. Also interested in the 60-something days that I was out there paddling, it did not rain on me one time. All I had to deal with was just this tremendous heat. The Mississippi River also uh, was the most challenging. Uh, I I had a number of years before had actually paddled the Mississippi River from its headwaters just uh, south of the Canadian border all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. So I was somewhat familiar with it, but it is a crazy river, uh, crazy currents, jetties. And again, as low as it was, every time I would see one of these big steamboats coming, uh, pushing these these, bar these huge barges, uh, I would just pull over and pull myself up on a sandbar on the bank and let them get by uh, you could see them or hear this whoop, whoop, whoop sound that they made uh, as they were coming towards you. So that was a 
that was always a challenge to get out of their way. Uh, one of the things I did most of the nights on the Mississippi River was to sleep on the sandbars. And one of the things uh, you need to know, folks, when you get out on a sandbar, you need to dig down about a foot or two and be sure you don't hit any water. And if you dig down and find moisture or water, you need to move away from that sandbar because they literally will wash out from under you uh, in the night and uh, uh, and have very uh, devastating consequences. Also, these sandbars are white sand. They had been absorbing this heat all day long. Uh, so that was not uh, not good uh, to sleep on all the time. So it was it was a little little different there. My journey took me uh, through Memphis, Tennessee, which was another cross uh, area. Took me on uh, on uh, to the Arkansas River. Uh, the Arkansas River, I was paddling against the current, but again, with these these dams that were about every twenty to twenty two miles apart, it was almost like paddling in in small lakes uh, all the way across. Uh, uh, one of the areas I went into was Little Rock, Arkansas, and I spent a little time there because the majority of the forced Indians travel uh, through Little Rock. Um, and uh, actually during the removal, there were some 40,000 of the removal uh, Indian people that uh, that had to move through uh, through Little Rock and through that area. And one of the reasons was it served as the home uh, for the Federal uh, Disbursement Office. And uh, so the Indians uh, sort of paddle through there before they, uh, uh, before they reach the Oklahoma Territory. And it was really the only site that all the removal Indians passed through uh, was Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, four of the major tribes did pass through Memphis, uh, the, the one exception being uh, the Seminole, uh, which, as I mentioned earlier, came up through uh, came up from the south uh, through New Orleans. Uh, my journey took me on to Lake Dardanelle, and, and, and actually the, uh, the western... Uh, a Cherokee uh, originally, as I said, had, had some of them left earlier and actually settled in there uh, in the late 1700s and established some towns and plantations. The Dwight Mission Schools located uh, Lake Darnell, and uh, almost 50 years later, the Trail of Tears brought all five tribes through uh, through this area by water and by land. One of the interesting things to me from my research as I paddled the water trail was. So much of the history of the Trail of Tears, particularly the water route, and of, and of areas uh, uh, were now underwater. Uh, and I was paddled, I was, I was reminded of this, that uh, a lot of cemeteries and a lot of, a lot of schools and a lot of, a lot of our history then was underwater as a result of, of, uh, of this flooding. Uh, I finally arrived at Fort Gibson, Oklahoma, uh, around the 1st of September, which... Uh, Ended my journey of some thirteen hundred eighty-five miles, and I was uh, I was glad to uh, glad to get on on land. Uh, but it was an amazing journey. Uh, it's something that I will never forget of all the expeditions I've done, and it gave me a real appreciation of the survivability of the American Indian people and of the hardship that they went through during that time, and that they're still here today and and are going strong. You have been listening to Nature's Edge with Dale Stewart. And until next time, I will see you in the wild. 